0: Welcome to episode number nine of The Thermal, the anti-podian edition. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, we go to Australia and hear about the impact of the devastating bushfires from the head of the Gliding Federation of Australia. And we also find out what it's like to fly in the Women's World Gliding Championships in extreme heat and smoke. That contest was recently held in Lake Keepit, Australia. We hear all about it from 18-meter pilot Kapin Sene. And from New Zealand, gliding guru and author G. Dale tells us about the Thermal Engine, his critically acclaimed set of gliding instruction manuals. Finally, on Gliding Club Confidential, we go back to Australia for a look at the Adelaide Soaring Club. That's all on this anti edition of the Thermal Podcast. Australia is home to some of the best gliding on the planet. Endless cloud streets at 10,000 feet and 1,000-kilometer flights are pretty common. But this season's unprecedented bushfires are proving a challenge for Australia's gliding community. I've reached Nimbus 3 pilot and president of the Gliding Federation of Australia, Peter Sesco, at his home in Adelaide, South Australia. Hello, Peter. Welcome to the Thermal. First off, very sorry to be hearing about the bushfires. Terrible story.
1: Well it is it's uh, it's quite horrendous for for various parts of Australia every state's been affected and and Australia is quite large as you would probably understand it's about the same area as the continental united states which is probably the easiest way i can uh, confirm it for people and every every state in Australia has been affected in one way or the other by these not not the least is the smoke haze that is going over the whole country in bits and pieces but I, I'd like to, to stress that it, it's not the fires aren't everywhere. The whole place isn't burning. It's, it's still quite good in most places and 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 very safe in the vast majority of places. It's right. just a few where the, the fires are. They are horrendous and and heavily fueled. So it is a this
0: lot of the smoke haze. Is that something that's affecting you in Adelaide?
1: Yes, it is. Yes, I I went outside last late last night. And had a look and I, I could only just see the end of the street. We have a, a large island, the third largest island in uh, in Australia, which is called kangaroo Island, which is I don't know probably 150 by 30 K or something like that um, and there are major fires and about a third of that has been burned, and that's wow. not far away that's that's a short light aircraft flight from here so
0: and the, and the fear is it's potentially going to get worse, right?
1: well we're hoping not at the moment we're we're right at the end of the the big fires and, and yesterday was the hot day for south australia victoria's is today and, and New South Wales is today another hot day mm-hmm. forty degrees wow. um, and they they we've all had a a cold front go through a, a small cold front and it's now going through again and uh, we're hoping that that will uh, this time bring some rain and with a bit of rain that'll help extinguish the fires. You've got to understand that some of the fires are in totally inaccessible right. areas. So uh, nobody can get to them to fight them. So they are being they're touted as being uncontro- out of control. And they are, because nobody can get into to fight them in those areas. But that also means that there's largely nobody there. But the animals are all affected of course.
0: Right. Terrible. I've and, seen some of those stories.
1: Uh, yeah, there's a there's a lot of animal deaths and injuries and uh, there's, a, there's a lot of people trying to help those as well so
0: now these these fires and their their impact on gliding it's it it's a first world problem but nonetheless it's indicative of our changing world climate what what's the impact what has the impact been on gliding in australia overall
1: okay so the the impact has been quite a bit recently we had uh, well i the recent f1 Grand Prix that I flew in with with my son's label uh, i that we lost I think two days or three days with smoke because the haze was just too great to put a number of gliders up. Uh, the national championships at Tokomo recently, and you mentioned you'd been to too they uh, they had to cancel uh, I think probably about half the days, so wow. maybe not 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 that many maybe, but it was a lot of days because you simply can't put a number of aircraft up safely.
0: So, and it's not uh, just the haze, exactly. right? It's also the the ability to breathe, right?
1: In the worst cases, yes, it becomes quite quite strong. I I have an asthmatic history, um, and, but it hasn't affected me as such. So, I think that's that that's in the where the uh, where the where the smoke is very very strong and very accurate, of course, because it's fire, mm-hmm. it's fire smoke, and and it it does get to people who have a history. Of, uh, of asthma or bronchitis, I guess, and and they would be, they are being quite badly affected. So yes,
0: but you, there, there no gliding clubs have been lost or, or aircraft damaged in these fires.
1: Not that I know of. I haven't heard of anything, and I would usually be know that fairly early. That would come to me straight away. So there's no gliding clubs. There um, there would certainly be some at risk at times as the fires go somewhere near. But I, do, I haven't heard of any that have, have lost anything or or any aircraft that have been damaged.
0: Let's hope it stays a, that way.
1: I, I sincerely hope so. Yes.
0: Has this been a particularly bad fire season, or is this something indicative of a of a new normal?
1: Oh, I I don't think we can say any of those things at this stage of the game. The last three years or so have we've all all the glider pilots have expected fantastic years as El Nino changes and those those sorts of things. Are moving, uh, and they do move regularly, and none of those years have been any good. Mm-hmm. Know, n- not any, not any good. There's been some records, and there's been there's been some good days, but nowhere near what we've expected. So, this year, subject to smoke, I, I guess, is going, is looking to be much better. I've I've already flown a couple of days at uh, fifteen thousand feet, right, uh, and uh, and they were quite strong thermals. I, one climb i I did it in Leeton recently was thirteen point four knots from about six or seven thousand feet to thirteen and fourteen thousand feet so okay you're you're,
0: that... you're making me jealous but uh, okay
1: <laughs> I did that on purpose yeah
0: <laughs> now you you also mentioned that you know the the temperatures, and you know once you get up to altitude and those kind of altitudes, sure the temperature is going to be a lot more comfortable, but you mentioned forty degrees Celsius. At a, at a gliding club, I mean, that's damaging to your health if you're not careful. How do you guys handle that from a safety point of view?
1: Okay, yeah, and it is an issue. We, we have to be very, very careful of how we manage things. Uh, we were de-rigging in 43-plus 40, the other day in uh, in Lebel, in, um, in Leeton, sorry. And um, you have to really look after yourself. So first of all, you need to keep yourself hydrated. And, and hydration is so important. It's so under underthought thought of um in a lot of places. So you go out in the gliding field as as most of your listeners would know, there isn't there's not much protection. Around the aircraft there is none. So of course you've got to be clear of the area. So you you need to keep yourself hydrated, you need to stay in the shade, you need to go and do air conditioning if possible. There. Sometimes people sit in their cars keeping the air conditioners running. That's not really good for the environment, I guess, but it's good for the person. Um, so those sorts of things are really, really important. You need to keep water up to yourself when you're flying, especially if you're low. Low, low level on those days where it's 40 plus uh, is excruciatingly bad for you. So you need to be very careful about those things. And, uh, and we are, I think, by and large. Uh, so, and when you get to height, the temperature goes down and that relieves some of that, but it doesn't relieve the aspect of the, the sun still beating down and you're through a clear cockpit and you are sweating and you need to keep that hydration up because you lose hydration, you lose focus, you lose everything later on in the flight just when you most need it. So that's that's a critical aspect. And that's what we do. We, we look after ourselves. We talk to each other. We go and say, how are you, mate? You know, just... Just in a, a talking way to make sure people aren't affected, and if they are, we get them out of out of the way and take their aircraft offline and and uh, until they've recovered properly. So that's it's just the way you should you should do it.
0: It gets me to thinking about landing out. Sure, you take enough water with you to to hydrate while you're flying, but let's say you land out in forty degrees Celsius and it's going to take your crew four or five hours to find you, and you're in some paddock somewhere. Do you, do you guys can't carry extra, extra water for those circumstances?
1: Some do, uh, but in some cases, uh, that's not possible. Some of the smaller gliders, you can only carry what you can carry, of course, and your maximum all-up weight dictates uh, some of those problems. But uh, so, yes, landing out can be a problem. It doesn't appear to be. We don't seem to have, have had any issues with that. People are very, very aware of the temperatures when they take off, and they know what they're planning to be. And when they get low, they tend to go somewhere near where there's a farmhouse or something like that. And we have a lot of large landable paddocks right, uh, right. in Australia, so so you do have a lot of choice as a general rule. Yeah, there are places where you shouldn't fly uh, over low, but there are there are plenty of places where there are people who live there, and you can go into the up to the farmhouse and knock on the door and say hello, and they'll bring, let you in with open arms and and help you. Um, keep yourself hydrated and okay right. here, 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 here's a
0: can of beer and relax yeah
1: yeah yeah exactly you
0: hey, now lo- looking into the future are, are there any talks about how the Australian gliding community is going to adapt to these these ever increasing temperatures and conditions
1: well there's a number of the, the gliding community as a whole has a, a number of issues and one of them is uh, uh, the climate aspect isn't Looked at very, very much as a change, as such. Just we will adapt as we do. But one of our major changes is is about the ageing demographics, and that's the same in all the world gliding areas. So, we started tackling that a few years ago, and uh, and our I think three and a half years ago when I became the president, we had an average age of fifty five years old in our in our organisation, and with a large mass of people moving through the 60s and going on to there. So we've been actively trying to get things changed and and make it younger and give us some resilience for the future in the organisation and as glider pilots. And our average age, uh, about three months ago, we had a look at it and it was 47. So we've dropped the average age down quite considerably and we've got a lot of younger people who are very attuned to all these sorts of things. And our... Our under twenty six group has gone from something like five percent five years ago to and don't quote me the numbers, they're they're pretty rough, to about twenty five percent of our membership now.
0: Right.
1: So that's that's a huge change. And our females we, we had two percent three or four years ago and and now that's twelve percent of our members. And that's uh, that's really interesting, and it's really good for the demographics of our uh, of our sport. And those people are very attuned to what nature's doing, and, and you have to be astounded by that, As you would understand, if you don't know what's going on around you, you you're not going to be able to fly very well.
0: I mean, that's an interesting point about the the younger demographic that they're quite attuned to things. But for for people who are over sixty, that's the number I'm kind of looking at, and it, it's harder. I mean, I'm in my my late fifties. And I know I have a more difficult time dealing with the extreme temperatures now than I did 30 years ago. And and, uh, that's certainly something to keep in mind, isn't it, for the older glider pilots?
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's an issue we're coming up to uh, quite regularly. We have a lot of people who are in their 70s plus uh, in the Gliding Federation, as we have worldwide, I'm sure. And they love their flying and they don't want to give it up. But increasingly, I'm seeing... Uh, people who are not quite as fit as they used to be saying well i'm only going to fly two seadars start right. with, with a safety pilot or i I'll, I'll do a ground I'll, instead of being instructing from now on I'll be a ground instructor, and we have a specific uh, position for that, so people can do ground instructions um, and 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 people are increasingly accepting. Um, their mortality I suppose mm-hmm. and we're all we're all there and I'm I'm, I'm a lot older than you are and uh, and that's okay there's nothing wrong with that with being old you we've made it that far and uh the benefit is that you uh, you have a bit of wisdom and that wisdom includes your own managing yourself and and so people do that and they manage their mates right and, right and the mateship that that helps mostly because then you've got somebody to sit down and talk to and you don't feel alone and all those sorts of things because mental pressures do do approach with the older generation as well. So,
0: well, Peter, it's been, uh, a pleasure speaking to you. Um, maybe the wrong word because of the, the circumstances in Australia right now, but thank you for taking the time and chatting with me. And I, I wish you the fellow glider pilots and the, the rest of your, uh, your countrymen, uh, uh a safe future i hope these uh, fires uh, start to back down
1: thank you so do we we we're, we're all there somewhere I'm trying to help take care peter thank you bye
0: peter sesco is the president of the gliding federation of australia i spoke to him from his home in adelaide south australia peter will be back later in the show on gliding club confidential to tell us about the adelaide soaring club Katrine Sene recently competed in the Women's World Gliding Championships, which were held at Lake Kiepet, Australia. Katrine flew a JS3 in the 18-metre class and finished third after a hard-fought competition. I've reached Katrine, who's now back home in Eidlingen, Germany. Katrine, congratulations on your, on your finish, your third-place finish. We, we've all been reading these reports about the fires and heat in Australia. Put, put me in the cockpit. How challenging was this competition for you?
2: The competition was quite challenging, yes, as you mentioned, because we had extreme heat the first week, and the training week we had temperatures up to 44, 45 degrees, and coming out of the European winter it was quite a change, and it was also a little bit humid, so it was even, you you even felt it, it was hotter. And of course, we knew from the news and from the newspapers that the situation with the big trout, which, which um, Australia is having since three years, is was curious and uh, yeah, challenging for all, for people and animals and everybody. Um,
0: so, how, how did you cope with the heat as a glider pilot? Did you have cooling vests? What what do you do in those temperatures?
2: The German team, we didn't have cooling vests, but we tried to stay as long as possible and as much as possible in air conditioning in, in rooms. And, of course, drinking, drinking, drinking was one of the most important things that you start all, already early in the morning to get your body back some or enough enough uh, fluids and water. Mm-hmm. I didn't have cooling vests, but I, I always had a, a wet towel around me a really wet towel to just cool down before takeoff. Takeoff was was the the hottest part of the day. But luckily, the thermals were quite high, so we had 10,000 feet or 15,000 feet cloud base. And as you know, then the temperature is relaxing and cool again up there.
0: Right, right. That does make a difference. And I understand some of the days as well, the smoke stopped you from flying?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. On I think it was tasked Day three, um, they said that the smoke may affect our task area. The task center always tried to put the tasks in that area where the smoke was not as thick or it was predicted not to move in. And we were we were on a five hours AAT task and after four hours in flight already, we have passed an area with really thick um, smoke. The visibility was very poor, and you couldn't see the the clouds or the cumulus clouds in front of you. And then Bruce Taylor, he also went into the air. He was a task setter and canceled the day in flight. But we were already through the thick, uh, thick smoke area, so it was a bit ridiculous. And on the furthest point out, we had to return then, and huh. the day was canceled.
0: Yeah, that, I, I could see points.
2: that
0: being a yeah. bit frustrating as a pilot. But yeah. it's, but at the same time, it was I guess it was a flight safety
2: decision. Yes, it was a flight safety decision. It's it's okay. It was okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was one day which affected us. And yeah, and also on the, on uh, one of the last AAT days, we had at the Mount Kapatur. That's the highest mountain around Lake Kipit, There were fires on, and we had to go through a, a smoke bench. Yeah, but it was only for a short while, so that was quite okay. But the visibility is very bad then.
0: Yeah, and that, and that when you get so many gliders in the air in a congested little airspace, that's when the the safety margins start to drop.
2: Yeah, that's right, but everybody had flams, and it's not, it was, I, I didn't see any other gliders except of our competition gliders, and compared with uh, South German um Glider density, that's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and on, a weekend, on a weekend here in my home club, the schwäbische Alpe in the Black Forest, you have to watch out. It's just uh, like a motorway. <laughs> right, right,
0: right. right. Now, you're, you're flying, uh, I think, a relatively new JS3. Did, did, did that glider make the difference between winning and losing for you on, the, on days?
2: Um, yeah, the JS3 is, is one of the gliders of the next generation, and... Yeah, I I also have since half a year now my own J3 in Germany, and I'm convinced it's at the moment it's the best performing glider you can buy in 18 meter class and in 15. So, but yeah, I think the the good pilots we were in in. 80 meter class were from France, and the, the French, as you know, they also fly JS3s, and my team partner, Steffi Mühl, she was flying a 29, which is, which is one of the older generations. And at that high speeds we had in Australia, I think the new generation um, gliders have an advantage with the high-wing loading, especially.
0: Uh, talk to me about some of those speeds. I saw one uh, day that you won I think you had an average speed of about 125 kilometers an hour over a 500 kilometer distance, is that
2: right? Yeah, I think we also we also had one day with 150 um kilometers an hour. Really? Yeah. I think it was on yeah, I don't know which day. We have to look it up. Yeah, yeah, but uh, when the conditions are good, it's just unbelievable how the J3 runs. It's like a racing horse. <laughs> so when you're when you're flying like
0: that, at that at those speeds, do you Put me in the cockpit, what, is, the, is it rock solid like on rails to describe the, the, the flying sensation at those speeds?
2: At those speeds, the flying sensation? It's astonishing. Yeah, if, if you we had those wonderful cloud, cumulus clouds, four octas and a high cloud base, and then you go between, between the thermals, we cruise at a 230 or 240 kilometers an hour until you hit the next thermal. And although I all of the days I flew with 600 kilograms maximum takeoff weight, so it's a 60 wing loading, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like a it doesn't feel like a heavy heavy glider. It is it is still very very agile, and you, you can handle it easy around the corners. And you still have the feeling for the for the air mass and where the thermals are really pushing. Then it's it's unbelievable with mm-hmm. these profiles.
0: Now, what what were the highs and lows for you in this particular contest?
2: Um, the highs and lows. Well, my last the, the last day I did finally my my day win, and it was a very tricky day with uh, AAT with a lot of spread outs and thunderstorms and cloud streeting in between and areas, AAT areas which were just uh, covered by rain showers. So that was my day, the mm-hmm. last day. That was for sure a high. A low was in the beginning. I. Th- I, I think we all were shocked to, when we first did our training flights. Um, how dry the country looked from above! It, it looked just like a desert. Hmm. It, we, you couldn't see any green anywhere, anywhere, and the Lake Lake Heabit was was down to zero point six percent of its normal volume of water. So that was a bit sad in the beginning and a bit depressing also.
0: Right, right.
2: Because, yeah. And on one day I missed uh, i missed a control point, and got a few a few um, penalty points. which was a stupid uh, little mistake from me. Yeah. The
0: little mistakes that cost you points, but yeah, you still did very well. Third place is great.
2: Yeah, but yeah, you, know, you must. I must admit, the French girls they did a the perfect team, team flying. Par excellence, they both had js J3, and they did very well. They had no low day or low point, so they were really in a good in a good racing condition. Right. Melanie Gadulet and uh, Andre Carouge.
0: Now, were there say. any landouts? Did you land out?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, that was uh, on task day seven. Um, Bruce Taylor, he said he wanted to to do on every day the biggest task he could think of and make us start as early as possible because he didn't want us to do tactical games um, before the start gate opens or before we, we went on to task. So on that one day, the, the weather wasn't predicted too good. The model was if it is going to get the the temperature to get the thermals going or not. Uh, but uh, that that was horrible. I think I was at five o'clock. I still had three hundred kilometers to go on my watch, so it was horrible. And the complete competition landed out on that day. Huh. And of course, of course, we were as far as out possible, where everybody landed out. So that was. Uh, uh, I think I haven't. I haven't experienced that a complete competition made out landing on one day.
0: Now, were you? In a, did you land in a paddock somewhere or an airfield? What uh, did you do?
2: No, um, I, I had the jet on board, of course. The the, the the J3 with the jet.
0: Oh right, sorry. Yes,
2: of course. Yeah, and I turned around the last turn point and got another ten kilometers until I had to land. But I took out the the jet and tried to to get as um nearby as possible to to keep it, of course. So I, I took the engine out at two hundred twenty k's. Away from Lake Epit, and I tried to get as long as possible or close as possible that Brad couldn't, uh, didn't have to catch me so far. But I knew that the daylight is going out, so I was racing against daylight because at half past eight it's pitch dark in Australia. So, how far did you get? uh, I was then still 120 kilometers out, but Brad Edwards, he borrowed me his JS3 he was already on the road so it was not too bad so and he said don't go into a paddock just uh, land on, a, on a Narrabri Airport so I was on Narrabri Airport together with Alicia McMillan that was quite fun. <laughs> is there,
0: <laughs> is there they, anything they, you you would have done they, differently?
2: Uh, yeah Um, the first week I think Steffi and me we always took uh, started a bit too early because um yeah with our with our team captain and um Wally our coach um he said please go please go because they predicted the sea breeze to come in in the training week or in the first competition week quite early and we experienced the sea breeze coming in from the east it is a violent dust cloud moving in and it is not fun and you cannot land if the sea breeze has completely moved in you cannot land in that visibility because it's only dust around you so you have to you have to land before the the sea breeze comes in and it comes in with quite a strong wind so we were a bit afraid and they said the thermals will will stop quite early so i think we started too early
0: I'd be afraid of something like that, too. Dust coming in, yeah. not seeing the ground, having to land. Yeah, no thanks.
2: Yeah, yeah, no thanks. It was uh, We had it a few times, and it was spectacular, really. So we were dusted and sanded quite often in Lake Heapit. Right.
0: Now, Katrina, one of the things that, you know, you were flying in the, in the Women's World Championships there, you have a different system than men do when it comes to peeing, which is in, very important <laughs> to do during flying. Talk to me about what you do.
2: The girls, what we do, yeah. Well, we, there was a, yeah, a company who invented a quite neat system for for female pilots or for incontinent women, mm-hmm. and somehow they stopped it. And I produced now a, a injection mold, and it's it's a very handsome thing. You just put it on before you go into your cockpit, and you have it on, and then you can pee into ping ping bags and that's very handsome not to have to use diapers which is quite uncomfortable and ugly to yeah.
0: do i yeah, can so imagine for many women
2: a, yeah they can have a look at frauenurinal.de there it is explained and also some pictures
0: i'll make sure i put a link for that up on uh, on the facebook page for the the thermal podcast so other people can go have a look at it and um, yes. thank yeah thank you it's it sounds like a a big improvement because i can imagine for a lot of women cross country pilots having to wear diapers is one of the the biggest setbacks for doing this kind of flying
2: it's 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 awful and drinking as yeah drinking is so important to keep your brain going
1: mm-hmm. and you
2: have to drink a lot during flying especially in in australia i had two water bags with me so i drank always every day 4 liters of of, of water and yeah during it's the flight, good. four liters. Of during water. the flight, yeah. During the flight, but hmm. hmm. so that one day I had the that one day I was eight. I was fifteen in the in the air. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yes. right a- under the. So you have
2: to drink. You have to drink, and yeah. you have to pee. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what a lot of people forget, whether you're a man or a man or a woman flying. If you don't pee, you're not hydrated properly, and in the in the end, it's going to affect your your flying skills, your ability, right?
2: Your concentration.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. It it affects your concentration possibility,
0: yeah. Here's a question for you. Why do we still have separate, I mean, women pilots are top of the game, just like, you know, there, there's equality in the cockpit. Why do we still have separate women's competitions?
2: I mean, that's a good question. The, origin- the, uh, the original thought was to to encourage more women to come to competitions was to have an extra women competition. Mm-hmm. That was, I think, the original thought of of having them. And somehow we still have them. I, yeah, there shouldn't be a reason why a woman couldn't be as good as a man.
0: Well, they are, let's face it. I mean, you guys are, from a pilot point of view, you flying point of view, you guys are equal, if not better.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. But the fact is we still have not enough women or girls in gliding. So I, I think we are still... A average of ten percent only. Um, women are glider pilots, so that's a bit of shame.
0: Well, so that that's a good reason to keep a, a women's only competition alive. If it if it means attracting more people, more women uh, to the sport, uh, I guess that's a good reason.
2: Yeah, but I think also in Germany we're not getting. I, I cannot see the last year that we are getting more mm-hmm. girls into our into competition flying at our club. I can see at the moment we are quite a few and and. Every year, we got one or two more girls starting to train and to do the the license, which is which is nice. But all all in all, I think competition uh, women flying in competitions could still be improved. Right.
0: It could still be more. Yeah. yeah. Okay. before I let you go, what what is it about racing sailplanes that that you're so makes you so passionate? What is it about this sport that you love?
2: Yeah, I, I'm. Oh, I'm flying now since thirty five years, and I'm. Every year I'm flying competitions, I just I just like competition flying, yeah, because of many reasons. First, the company with the friends you have, because the competition um, lasts at least for one week, and you have a very intensive time then with your friends, and of course the, the international gliding family is a big family, and you get to know many people after so many years in gliding and the the second is is to have the direct um comparison with with the other competitors um trying to fly as fast as possible and to fly as as good as possible yeah it's 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 the racing spirit which I still like and I have always liked huh. i think yeah you have to be you have to have it from from the beginning to to do that. And every new comp day, of course, is a new challenge. I like the challenge. And all, after all, um, you have to fly in weather conditions at a competition where you normally say, well, this looks really shit now. So why should I go flying? And then, however, it turns out you could have done the task or you have done the task, which is then, which is then very really is- astonishing. Yeah. And I like the adventure and, Sometimes you also get, of course, some adrenaline, and uh, that's the racing spirit, which I love.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, again, con- congratulations on uh, on your podium finish uh, in Australia, and uh, I-, I hope I get to meet you someday.
2: I hope so, too. Thank right. you.
0: Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Katrin Sene spoke to me from Eidlingen, Germany. Katrine recently finished in third place in the 18-metre class at the Women's World Gladian Championships held in Lake Keeper, Australia. And if you want to know more about her in-flight P-device for female pilots, you'll find the link on the Thermals Facebook page. Katrine is also the European representative for Yonker sailplanes. Now a word about our sponsor, SkySight, the fabulous weather app designed by a glider pilot with glider pilots in mind. For listeners of the Thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the gliding club, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. If you want to learn more, listen to SkySight's founder Matthew Scudder on episode number 7, where he tells us about how he came up with the concept for SkySight and how it works. Go to SkySight.io to sign up. That's SkySight.io. Glider pilots should be proficient in their flying and their gliding knowledge, because staying proficient is staying safe. Acquiring new knowledge and brushing up on old knowledge should also be part of every pilot's routine, no matter how many hours you have in your logbook. G. Dale is the author behind The Soaring Engine, a soon-to-be three-volume set of books that go deep into gliding theory. He's a very experienced glider pilot, instructor, gliding coach, and world-class competition pilot. G. calls the UK home but likes to chase the endless summer. I've reached him in Omarama, New Zealand, where he teaches advanced cross-country soaring in the southern Alps of New Zealand so gee, nice to speak with you be, before we get into the soaring engine, what kind of impact have the uh, Australian fires had there in New
3: Zealand? We had one day here last week where there was so much smoke you really didn't want to go flying you really? know, it was quite serious. Oh yeah yeah well when the, it comes across here it comes across it can be at the top the middle or the bottom, but when it came across the other day it was all the way through and completely unadulterated it was filthy. Absolutely filthy. But, of course, I've been in Narrowmine as well, and uh, it's had a huge impact there. Narrowmine, easy... Australia. Okay. Yeah, Narrowmine, Australia. I did eight weeks of course flying there just, just before Christmas, and um, we, we lost a few days due to smoke and uh, a few days due to dust as well because huh. of the drought.
0: Now, gee, you're on the thermal to talk about the, the soaring engine. What inspired you to actually write these books?
3: It, it just needed to be done. Mm-hmm. It just needed to be done. I've I've spent a lot of time. I've spent a lot of time coaching. So, fairly obviously, one of the things that a coach might do is sit down and write a book. But it went a bit beyond that. There are techniques. Um, there's a knowledge base that is kind of verified, uh, and it's a very probability-driven sports. But but sport. But the knowledge base is verified by um, results. You know, you look at someone like Sebastian Keller you can't tell me that there isn't a knowledge base there and a technique that he understands that works Mm -hmm. and the polish team teach it to their 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 other players and it works it's 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 not something um it's it's not a gift it's not a talent it's a real skill like playing golf or swimming or running or something
0: but it's also not just a a point of acquiring the skill it's Constantly acquiring
3: the skill, isn't that right? Any one flight, any one person on any one cross-country flight won't generate enough data points to learn very much. Mm -hmm. If you fly for twenty years, if you do, I don't know, ten thousand hours over twenty years, you'll generate quite a few data points, and you'll be able to draw some valid conclusions. If you go out with your mates every day um, for twenty years, and and you you put five people together. And they fly for twenty years, so you've got fifty thousand hours, and you and you talk about it afterwards. You'll generate some real data points and some real, um, some real analysis, some real statistical analysis of what goes on. So the Wh- more, which is where
0: it, your books uh, come in.
3: Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, precisely. I mean, my my books are a distillation of stuff I've learned through working in soaring. Well, I started working in soaring soaring itself rather than just teaching gliding when i was 32 and that's nearly 30 years ago uh just about everything i've done has been soaring based i've spent some time running gliding clubs but but mainly the skill set has been trying to to work with soaring and teach soaring
0: now you've put your knowledge into these three volumes talk to me about the three volumes and, and how you've separated this knowledge
3: the first two volumes largely come out of teaching soaring for the BGA, for the GFA—that's the Australian uh, organisation—and for Glide Amerima here at um, here at Amarima. Uh I've spent a lot of time in the classroom trying to explain what we did yesterday and what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. A lot of time drawing drawing draw, uh, drawing diagrams on the whiteboard, and the first two volumes distil those. Briefings, those lectures, those debriefings, in, into an ordered form with a bit of story arc. You know, this is how a thermal forms. Therefore, 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 do this, do this, do this. Um, you need a you need a story arc, a narrative to to fit any work like that into. So, the first volume talks about um, essentially about the mechanism of thermal formation and the way that thermal formation changes when you're in the mountains. There's a bit in the first book on safety in the mountains. Because the one thing that that just keeps happening is people keep whacking gliders into hillsides. Um, And that's usually fatal. Uh, And I I
0: noticed one of your messages in in that book is always having an escape route. And as I was reading that, I'm more of a flatland pilot, but I do like to think that that overall concept of having an escape route, your plan B, if you will, Applies to all types of gliding, isn't that right?
3: Well, Brian Sperkley used to say, if if you're down to one option, then then you're actually in the poo already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you you don't want to be down to one option. But yes, yes, when you're when you're up against the hill, the concept of a, an escape route is is vital. You know, an escape route for the next few seconds. And once or two, once or twice in my life, I've put myself in the position where I didn't have an escape route, and the ground was coming up, and you think, oh, oh um i don't tend to do that very often now anyway flying in the mountains can be hazardous it's a skill that you have to learn it's 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 really much better to get taught by someone who can do it properly and teach it um otherwise it's very hazardous indeed but well, this anyway, is I where
0: your to... this is where your books come in because i'm i'm a flatland pilot and i i was reading your your first volume and you know it makes me realize even though i'm a relatively experienced pilot with an number of years of gliding under my belt i'm reading this and realizing boy i still have a lot to learn and so that means your book applies not just to inexperienced pilots but experienced ones as well
3: oh yeah absolutely well gliding is a very amateur sport and given the difficulties involved in actually going gliding at all you know you've got to first of all you've got to learn to fly get solo you end up getting an airplane which is hugely expensive and terribly hard terribly hard to run and then how many hours a year do you get you know if you're working it's hard to get more than sort of 50 hours a year or something you know and you need like 250 hours a year 300 hours a year to be getting from from mediocre up to up to a high standard you need a lot of flying it's very very hard to acquire so it is a largely amateur sport with a lot of people who do it flying way below their potential ability because they just can't do enough flying. Right. So they need all the help they can get. So
0: talk to anyway, me about volume two and three. You've mentioned volume one. What What are the other two so volumes look, about?
3: I'll tell you one and two are about soaring things. So soaring, soaring conditions, meteorological conditions, volume two goes on and tackles the speciality conditions of flying in wave mm-hmm. and flying in convergences. So you you look out of the window and you go, you look at some clouds on the back of the hill and you go, ah, oh, there's a wave there. And then you look again and you think, oh, no, 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 actually, it's the convergence. It's, it's, they're not really similar. They're not similar features. But, but in the sky, well, well, fundamentally, look, if it's not ridge and it's not thermal, it's either wave or convergence. It's one or the other. You've got to work out which one it is.
0: Right, but re- reading your book and that knowledge base that we just talked about will help you, in theory, tell the difference.
3: Oh, absolutely, and and in, in sites like well, if you fly in say Scotland or 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 you fly in in the big wave site like like you're flying out of Minden, um, Minden for instance, you get great wave, but you don't tend to get weak wave over good thermals very often. People don't find it when the thermals are good. You know, the tops over eighteen thousand feet anyway, and you can't go up there, and 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 you know for various reasons it divides very cleanly into wave and thermal and convergence. You see the difference. Soaring in in ridge, thermal, and in varied terrain is as far as a lot of people get. People don't tend to fly in wave very much unless they're in one of the specialist wave-soaring sites. They don't tend to fly in convergences very much unless you get very obvious convergences set up. Certainly flying here, you, you see a lot more subtle things that mix in with those um, ridge and thermal conditions pretty much all the time.
0: Right, you've got a, so, more of a mixed bag in Omeroma than in other sites.
3: Flying here, it's an open textbook in, in terms of meteorology, an absolutely wide open textbook. It, it, it's... Well I think it's just about the best place in the world to fly. I, I've done a lot here and it's just fabulous.
0: It's on my list and I'll be coming down. So your first two volumes cover the meteorology, the some of the knowledge behind different types of gliding weather. Volume 3, what what's that about?
3: Well, it's unfinished yet but I've nearly finished the first draft. Um it's um it's a sideways step but it it complements the other two. It, it it completes the picture. It's not about how the sky works mm-hmm. and where you put the glider it's about how the glider works how your head works how the game works and how to learn to um, navigate your way through all those all those complications to get good results so the book's about performance flying mm-hmm. then I'd, I'd have a big section on how the head works mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. Gliding is a real decision-making sport. Decision-making and probability it's more, it has more in common with wargaming or trying to make money out of the stock market or running a business. It's more in common with those functions than it has with, say, playing football or golf. It's not so much a skill-based thing. You, you you learn all the skills, and that just gives you something to bring to the party. Now you can sit at the table and, and deal with the cards and and, and pick sure, up your it's hand and what, what skills it.
0: and experience and knowledge constantly being recycled.
3: Yes, but but especially the decision-making thing in a in a stochastic world, it, it's a probability-driven mm-hmm. world. And one of the things that human beings are terribly bad at under pressure is making decisions. Um, making good decisions under pressure—they tend to shoot from the hip.
0: And this is something you're going to be talking about in in volume three to to allow yes, yes. pilots like yes. me to read it and start thinking about how I think when I fly.
3: Oh, exactly. There's 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 reasons why we have things before we go flying. We have things bef- that we call briefings. You have a briefing to take out of your your. Um, your intellectual knowledge, you might you might have an intellectual understanding that there's a piece of airspace to the north with a certain set of boundaries and a certain uh, set of uh, altitude limits, um, some which are expressed as an altitude, some which are expressed as a flight level and a couple of frequencies and different VNC requirements and, and, and. But you want to go fly from here to there. So you look at the track and you go, right. There I need to be on this frequency and under that height. There I need to change. I need to be on this frequency and under that height. I can't go into there. If I have a choice, I'll go up that ridge rather than that ridge. You do that before you fly because when you're actually flying, you don't have the intellectual capability to do capability to do that. Mm-hmm. That's a part of the sports psychology problem. And that's not really handled in conventional sports psychology that I've come across so i I spent quite a lot of time talking about the decision making process and how to how to manage your head and then the other part of the uh, the other parts of Volume three are about practicing once you've understood how your brain works under pressure, you start to re- understand the requirement to practice and how to practice and what to practice and what you can get out of it. So I talk about simple ways of practicing ways you can move yourself forwards. Um, and then I talk about uh, how to fly competitions. Yeah.
0: Is, is there anything on your, on your gliding wish list that you still want to check off? It seems like you've accomplished so much.
3: Yeah, wish list for gliding. <laughs> well, I bought an Ash 25. I, I've been I've been stuck in lower performance gliders for years and years um, because, you know, I've been sort of like broke because I'm a glider pilot. <laughs> and um, my mum passed away a couple of years ago. And so this... This latest purchase is definitely Bank of Mum, God rest her soul. She'd, she'd appreciate it. We we have a little family of glider pilots here. My my girlfriend Annie is a glider pilot and a tow pilot, and my nephew Luke is a very good glider pilot and works in aviation. So I took the family money, and I went and bought a family glider, which is Yash 25. So that's 1990. I mean, it's not a modern glider now. It's not a fast glider now, but it'll certainly go long distances. Um, So, yeah, I'd like to do some distance flying again with that. Um, I'd like to do some touring around Europe. I've never done a thermal 1,000-kilometer flight, so Mm -hmm. I'd like to start with that as a goal and and push it up for that. And it's possible to do a 1,000K in the UK. Um, My mentor, Chris Rollins, managed a 1,000K, first 1,000K in the UK a long time back, and that was in a 25, exactly the same as mine. So it's it's doable. Um, It's always good to have
0: goals in gliding as far as I'm concerned.
3: Oh, absolutely. And and there's other things to do. I want to go back to the States. I've got a lot of friends in the States. So I want to go fly in, in the Central Desert again. I'd want to go and fly at Mifflin again. Um, I, I flew there a long time ago, and we didn't have a very good comp because of the weather. I'd love to go and fly there.
0: Come and fly uh, in my part of the world, and uh, you you can fly the conversions line uh, on the north shore of Lake Erie.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds good. It's a lot of fun. I have a lot of contacts in gliding. A lot of contacts in gliding because of what I do. And, and there's a lot of places I could go and, and you know, fly with people in two-seaters, and, and they can show me around their, their local patch, and I can make a contribution. A lot of people are type hogs. You know, they fly a zillion different types of glider. I'm a, I'm a task area hog. I like to fly in different task areas and find out, find out what's going on. Gee, be, before,
0: I let you, before I let you go, what, what is it about soaring that's turned it into such a lifetime passion for you?
3: When I when I was a kid, when I was a kid, like ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, I used to read. I used to read and read and read and read. I remember I came off the back of reading one set of stories about asteroid miners flying single ships around the outer system, and then I picked up a book by um, by um, Wills, uh, Philip Wills. Um, his his two books about soaring, and I started reading these as ages thirteen. I started reading these, and it was just an immediate hook. Huh. You know, I'd just been reading about someone flying a, a fusion-driven single ship around round the outer system, and then I started reading a true story about somebody flying a Vire across the channel, and, and it just absolutely hooked me. I thought, I can do this? Yeah. And so I was, I was hooked on soaring ever since, and I started building model gliders. I didn't huh. manage to fly sailplanes till I was 20. But as soon as I managed to fly sailplanes, I never did anything else useful. That was it. And I, I, I can't tell you anything else about that. I mean, it's just, it's, it, you are what you are, aren't you?
0: Right. Gee, listen, it, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I hope to meet you in person some point in the future. And uh, happy safe flying.
3: Well, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Okay. I'm going take out for a long bike ride today. It doesn't look like a great day, so <laughs> I'm going out for a long bike ride. All right. Take care. Cheers. Oh, cheers. Cheers, Harry. Thanks.
0: Chidale Dale spoke to me from Omarama, New Zealand. He's the author of The Soaring Engine, which comes in three volumes. Volume three will be out in the near future. Google search The Soaring Engine to see where they're available in your area. You can also order directly at thesoaringengine.com. That's (laughs) thesoaringengine.com. Earlier in the show, we heard from Peter Sesco the president of the Gliding Federation of Australia. Peter is now back to talk about the Adelaide Soaring Club on Gliding Club Confidential. So Peter, tell me about your club and exactly where it's located.
1: It's located just north of the city of Adelaide. In fact, it's the closest club to Adelaide. Mm-hmm. It, it's on an expressway. Um, and in fact, the expressway went through about five or six years ago and it cut off it shortened both of our runways no <laughs> not 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 yeah so we tried to do all sorts of things and we thought the economics might have helped because they had promised that uh, because where the runway was going where the uh, road was going our all our hangars and everything else were on the other side of the of the new expressway and so that meant that somehow we had to get across the expressway with all of our gliders and they weren't going to build an under under road uh, access so they gave us like for like facilities. And they and they built new facilities for us. So our club is actually relatively new facility wise. We have new hangars, new new workshops, new club rooms, all of those types of things. But shorter and, runways. And but slightly shorter runways. We had no choice in it. We we wouldn't have wanted that in the best world but the, the runways are still quite adequate, and I can't tell you what they are just off the top of my head. Right, but
0: they're, but they're, they're quite, long enough to get off the ground safely.
1: Right, oh, well, they're long enough to get anything off the ground safely. So, pretty well. So, there's no problems. There's the next World War Two airfield anyway. So, oh, okay. Uh, so it's the
0: triangle, the tri- old triangular kind of field.
1: No, no, just a, a, a square two runway. There were other taxiways and things over the years ago in World War Two, but not they're not they don't exist anymore. Right, right. Um, But the runways do, and that's quite good. So the club has got uh, about 250 members. It's split into two parts. It actually has an RAOZ, which is an ultralight federation in Australia. Mm -hmm. It has, uh, I think they have three or four ultralights in the club, and they train on that. And we also have the gliding side of it. So obviously it's Adelaide Soaring Club. It started out as as that, and the ultralights were brought in to... Give people another venue and another way to look at look at aviation. Yeah, that's and nice that's to been, share with
0: a different uh, group of aviators.
1: Yeah, and and but they're all members of the same club. We're all members of the same club, right. so that's that's important. The club has uh, was a few years ago um, looking down the barrel of the end, the termination of its uh, final lease with the local council because it's a council run aerodrome.
0: Yeah,
1: and and the. The Soaring Club manages it on behalf of the council and uh, and we do that very well I think so that that we were looking down the barrel of the the lease was finishing and uh, fortunately for us uh, and the local community I believe uh, there were a couple of really big fires and, and fire bombers came in to support the local area from, uh, from other places and they used the airfield as a as a base as a, as a base.
0: Well, and in, in light they, of what's going on right now, that's a, a big plus, isn't it?
1: Well, absolutely, and, and they now use that as a normal base. Huh. Um, so, so the club now, and I believe partly because of that, um, and a, a lot of other negotiations, of course, now has a 48-year lease or something along those lines, so we have some security of tenure for a long, long time, mm, and great. the airfield will be there for that time. Of course, there's the usual encroachments of people getting closer and closer, but uh, that's not not unusual with any any airfield. I don't think.
0: Right, but same, so the yeah.
1: club the club has a good a good airfield that has good a council that's very appreciative of it. We do co use it with the fire bombers when they when they arrive. We we usually stop operations uh, launching operations when they have intensive activity and they bring in six to eight aircraft. They're just continuously operating when that right. happens. Um, if you're in the air, you go and finish whatever you're doing. Then you come back, you fit in and land. Make S- sure small you small price room.
0: to pay if your uh, fellow citizens' homes and, and lives are going to be
1: saved. Absolutely, and we we have no problems at all with that. We they use our facilities, um, you know, they use the drinks out of our fridges and all those sorts of things, and, yeah. and that's um, you know it's what you do of course. to support your community, isn't it? So. So, to so talk to me great. a
0: little bit about the local geography uh, for the club. Is it is it flatland flying? Do you have hills nearby? Give me an idea what it looks okay. like.
1: Yep. Okay. So it's flatland. We're we're not far from the sea. Uh, we have a sea breeze comes through, often about one thirty, somewhere between one thirty and and three thirty, depending on the prevailing wind. We have low hills to the right, the Barossa Valley, mm-hmm. uh, to the to the east of us. Slightly. Nice,
0: nice wine and, area.
1: A yeah, nice wine area. Yep, and that. And those hills go up north. And so what can happen is, and does happen, is that we take off from Gawler and subject to airspace, because we're in military-controlled airspace, we we uh, can take off and fly due north for a long way in in hilly surrounds. So we get all the benefits of, of mountain flying and hills in with thermal, you which know, the the facing of the of the hill faces with uh, onto the sun and all those sorts of things. So we can get a lot of benefit from that, and we can fly a long way. And then to the right of that, to the east, is uh, is Wakery and those, those clubs, which typically start off a bit later in the day and, and sometimes go a bit longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we can be um, three or 400 kilometres into a flight before the flat lands over to the other side of the hills, uh, before they become active. That sounds great. Fly. That is, it's a fantastic place to fly. We have uh, airspace limitations potentially because we're in the military controlled airspace. Mm-hmm. But we we've had a long uh, long history of working well with them, and so we get we we can fly quite reasonably in the vast majority of times. Um, and occasionally, sometimes that impinges us. But they've been good to us too. Sure, you got to uh, share have, the airspace, with, yeah. Yeah, well, you do have to share the airspace. There's no doubt about that. We've all got to sh- share the airspace with everybody. But uh, in the end result, the military being good to us. Yeah. Talk
0: to me about the fleet. What kind of uh, gliders do you have? And I'm assuming okay. it's a tow operation?
1: It's an aerotow operation. We have two tow aircraft, two Pawnees. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and we have a DG-1000, a DG-505, and a Twin Astair 2. Um, as our training fleets, we have two... Discus 2, Discus, no, Discuses.
0: Right, nice gliders, yeah.
1: Um, Yep, and uh, and that's our single-seater fleet at the moment. There's some talk about where where we're going next because we're seeing quite a huge amount of volume uh, being used in the DG, the two DGs, because they're they're used as well for cross-country training and all those sorts of things.
0: Nice problem to have to have too many pilots.
1: it, It is, it is a problem. And it's not; a, it's a nice problem. You're right. We also have, I think, about seventy other aircraft on the airfield. Okay. Of which a percentage of those, I think, there's five Labels there at the moment, and I, I took note of that. But uh, and probably about thirty other gliders. that would be my guess. I don't mm-hmm. know, just yeah. off the top of my head. Um, and the and so there's a lot of activity, and we you know we have especially Easter weekend is a big weekend for us, and we have a big a competition because it's the end of the, the summer season, typically, yeah. and we so the Easter weekend is a Easter regatta, and um, otherwise the the club's got people who are active in most of the competition scenes. For right. example, um, Peter Temple, you may have heard of him. He's he's very um, around in the GP circuit at the moment. He's okay. one of our head coaches. He's a member. Matthew Scudder started training at Gore.
0: And Matthew's been on this podcast.
1: Yes, I, I knew that. That's why I mentioned it. So, um, and and all the and there are a number of other people who are very very high profile have been for a long time. So they're they're all out there flying and, and doing some good things. What
0: well, What are the annual fees and aerotow fees like at the club?
1: Okay, the aerotow fees come out to about for a normal two thousand foot launch. You can launch to your whatever height. It's done by minutes and whilst I can't quote that, it comes out for 2,000 feet, typically about 35 to thirty-five
0: to $40 okay. Australian. Yeah.
1: Um, and the club fees are uh, I think about $65 for an hour. Okay, not, for I'm rental, I'm yeah. yeah sure that's rent. so that's reasonable, there, that's about yeah. equivalent
0: yeah. with what we have here in Canada, yeah? Yeah. yeah? And your annual fees, your annual membership fees?
1: Oh, the annual membership fees are about Thinking, thinking, thinking. It's <laughs> prob- probably about four fifty dollars for a year. Yeah, very reasonable. Uh, yeah, and you have to, you have to join the gliding federation as well.
0: Right, just like here yeah, in Canada, you've got to be a member of SAC, the soaring association yeah. of Canada. Yeah, yeah,
1: same thing. So that's another three hundred and fifty bucks. But that's yeah, you know, that's part of what you do. So. Of course.
0: Well, next yeah. time I'm in Australia, I'm going to make sure I come by for a visit and a flight.
1: Absolutely, I'll take you. Up. No problems whatsoever.
0: Before I let you go, finally, what's the best thing about your
1: gliding club? The best thing about the gliding club is actually the fact that everybody helps each other and they're they're willing to just go out of their way to help you go and fly and you go and help other people so they can fly. If anybody's got a problem, we've got people who will just go out and help you with the problem, whatever that happens to be. And that's, that's the mateship that I like about gliding.
0: Absolutely, I can relate to that,
1: yep. Yep. Peter.
0: Thank you, thank you very much for talking to me about your gliding club, and uh, I hope uh, you have some uh, some nice flying in the future for you.
1: No problems whatsoever. If you want to talk again about any subject, happy to have the talk.
0: Cheers. Take care. Bye bye.
1: Thank you. Bye.
0: Peter Cesco is a member of the Adelaide Soaring Club, and he spoke to me from his home in Adelaide, Australia. That's it for episode number 9 of the Antipodian edition of the Thermal Podcast. I will be back again in early March with another show that will include a solar-powered motor glider. An Ungliding Club Confidential pilot with a paintbrush tells us all about the D-Side Gliding Club. The Thermal has listeners all over the world, and the audience is growing at a steady rate. Please spread the word and help me keep this podcast going. Also, if you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at the thermal podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's the thermal podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the thermal podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.